Hello, and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast series on influenza. This is the second of the series of four. We welcome our two faculty, Dr. Charles Vega, Health Sciences Clinical Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at UC Irvine, where he is also the Assistant Dean for Culture and Community Education and the Executive Director, UC Irvine Program in Medical Education for the Latino Community at UC Irvine School of Medicine, and Dr. Mary Montgomery, Associate Physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Instructor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. The learning objectives of this podcast are, one, identify patients at high risk of influenza complications who would benefit most from antiviral treatment or prophylaxis, and two, discuss management of influenza in the geriatric population. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com. Welcome to this PrimeMed podcast entitled Populations at High Risk for Influenza, Older Adults. I'm Dr. Chuck Vega, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by Dr. Mary Montgomery. She is an infectious disease expert and clinician educator at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome back, Mary. Thank you. All right. Our primary objective today is to identify patients at high risk of influenza complications who would benefit most from antiviral treatment or prophylaxis. And let's take you know, the largest group in my practice that I see who is at high risk for complications, and that is older adults. Why is it so important to prevent and treat influenza in our older patients? Yes, unfortunately, uh, anyone that's 55 years of age or older is at high risk of complications. And you know, that is uh, those population of patients have really the highest burden of flu-related hospitalization and, and death. And unfortunately, you know, of flu-related deaths that we see in this country, about 70 to 85% of them occur in patients who are older than 65. I think the other hard part about this population is that older adults might actually display less classic symptoms of the flu. So they might have worsening of their underlying kind of chronic cough or chronic shortness of breath. And so it can be missed um, and missed uh, to be, so treatment has started later. And so unfortunately, this population is at higher risk of complications, higher risk of not displaying classic symptoms. And then something that can be changed is that we can try to immunize, immunize more older adults because unfortunately at this moment in time, only about 65% of older adults are vaccinated against influenza. So hopefully that is something uh, that we can work on in all of our clinics uh, to really get this vaccination out. And the vaccine, which we'll talk about later when we talk about the different vaccine uh, uh, that are available, you know, vaccine effectiveness is also not perfect in this population because they have a poor immunologic response. And so as a result, we actually have developed, which we'll talk about hopefully later on, a high dose flu vaccine, which is what we recommend for those uh, who are 65 years of age or older. Yeah, great points all around. And, you know, for my patients, I do take care of a lot of 
older patients with multiple chronic illnesses, and those, that risk is, is generally additive. When you add more uh, risk factors for complications of influenza, the risk just goes higher and higher. Um, so vaccination is, is absolutely uh, critically important uh, for uh, these older patients. And what I've found is that um, when patients uh, unfortunately get influenza uh, and they have these multiple risk factors, they are hospitalized, uh, they develop acute kidney injury and they can develop cardiovascular events and they can develop a, a host of other problems that are on top of their chronic medical problems and they come out debilitated and sometimes they need to go into rehabilitation and I've had several patients where that was uh, the end of their living independently uh, what coincided with the time they got influenza because it just knocked them so far back during hospitalization they weren't able to uh, to meaning, meaningfully recover and that's that's really sad and you know obviously uh, we want to keep our older patients as, as independent as they as they can be as they want to be uh, for as long as possible so and Chuck, if I, yeah, I could oh. say I, I think that's even another plug to to say to patients when, when they're thinking about getting an influenza it's actually been shown influenza vaccination has also been shown to decrease hospitalization from cardiac disease and stroke, um, not just from influenza itself. And I think you're really talking to the point that patients develop influenza, but then influenza can then be linked to further cardiac complications down the line in addition to other things. So I think kind of framing it as uh, a way to kind of preserve independence and to stay out of a hospital and stay out of a nursing home is a, is a really great way to frame it. Yes, that is that is one of my closing arguments when it comes to uh, influenza vaccination among, among the vaccine hesitant. And my absolute closer during COVID-19 times is it's 3 a.m. on Sunday morning, you wake up, uh, you have a severe cough and, you know, say you have a fever or you feel malaise. What are you going to do? And I just leave it there because it's, it's a very scary thought, especially during the pandemic, and especially if you have, um, you know, you're over 65, you have multiple comorbid conditions that put you at higher risk. Um, so let's take out that scenario. Like we can take out that scenario by giving you the influenza vaccine. We can take out that scenario by giving you the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, let's just prevent that from happening in the first place because, uh, you know, many people wouldn't know what to do. I myself wouldn't know exactly what to do, and I definitely, had had a moment at 3 a.m. when my son told me he couldn't breathe one night where I just, I was up and ready. I was halfway to the emergency room when he told me, when we figured out it was a nightmare that actually caused his uh, symptoms in the first place. So thankfully, um, no COVID-19, no influenza for him, and he slept soundly okay. the rest of the yeah. evening. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, it just, it just really drove home how important it is that the, um, uh, the anxiety and, uh, and the stress, you know, you can, you can alleviate those by being protected. Um, so that said, you know, we know the vaccines aren't 100% effective against influenza. You know, do you have any tips in terms of getting a reliable history of symptoms among older adults in particular? Yeah, so, you know, older adults are at risk of complications as we talked about. So I think the key is if you have someone who is, you know, describing symptoms that seem consistent or have had a high risk exposure, I think that the key is to treat them, uh, you know, empirically while you're waiting on the test. If they have any symptoms that could be associated with influenza, we're in the peak influenza period or they've been exposed to it. And, and so that's really the key. So it's really, if you have uh, a high suspicion, it's starting, um, it's, it's starting treatment right away, even while you're waiting on the test. Right. Um, and so let's return to vaccines for a minute. Um, 
Now, we have some specific recommendations, and I think it's really the only time that the Centers for Disease Control um, recommends a particular type of influenza vaccine, um, and uh, that's for older adults. Can you, uh, can you cover those, uh, those guidelines and, and what you would recommend uh, to clinicians out there? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I get asked it a lot by my patients, my parents, my parents' friends, and, and really um, it is, we do recommend that individuals who are over 65 should get the high-dose flu vaccine if it's available. Um, and if it's not available, then of course it's best to get whatever vaccine is available in clinic. The kind of second best would be the quadrivalent recombinant vaccine, which is better than the standard dose. Um, but that in itself, we don't know, the standard dose has never been uh, studied head-to-head -head with the high-dose inactivated vaccine. So again, best is the high-dose, then the recombinant, if that's not available, then the standard inactivated. And the high-dose really has been shown to be more immunogenic and effective in older adults. This was a study published in New England Journal back in 2014. It was a very large study, 31,000 um, patients who got the trivalent high-dose vaccine compared to the standard uh, trivalent um, uh, inactivated vaccine. And it was associated with less lab-confirmed influenza illness, and it was also found to be more immunogenic. And so it was really based on that clinical trial that came out of the New England Journal that we have now recommended uh, the high-dose flu vaccine to our older adults. And really, when, we, when you think about the flu vaccine, the last question that I get is, well, when should I get it? You know, they are offering it uh, now, you know, the end of August, beginning of September, or should I jump and get it immediately? And interestingly, you know, outbreaks of the flu can occur as early as October, but the majority of peaks of outbreaks occur in January or later. And so since immunity wanes, uh, I think the best kind of golden period to get the flu vaccine, if feasible, is kind of middle of October to the end of October. You don't want to get it too late, putting yourself at risk. You don't want to get it too early, putting yourself at risk later in the flu, flu season. That's great comments. Uh, you know, I agree with everything you just said. It's certainly what we strive for uh, here in our center. So vac universal vaccination um, is, is really uh, the, the main way we're going to take care of our older adults and protect them against uh, you know, getting influenza in the first place, but particularly the complications of influenza and influenza-related mortality as well. And, and the group that's at highest risk, as, as you mentioned, are folks in assisted living or in long-term uh, care facilities. Um, are there, beyond universal vaccination for those individuals, are there other things that, uh, that we should be doing to protect those individuals? Yeah, so unfortunately, as, we, as we've seen um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, nursing homes and long-term care facilities were decimated by outbreaks of COVID-19. It's a very closely contained area with a lot of patients, um, you know, elder adults living with uh, chronic conditions. And so that is unfortunately the same thing with the flu. So even before COVID-19 hit, we've always um, had devastating um, influenza outbreaks in these community dwellings. And so I think two keys, as you've already talked about before, is like 100% of uh, of patients who are living in those long-term care facilities need to be vaccinated against influenza. And it's just as important to include that the staff uh, in those uh, uh, community dwellings also need to be vaccinated. It's been shown that when staff, healthcare staff are also vaccinated, it's associated with decreased mortality in older adults in those care facilities. And so that's really on us who care for those people, patients um, who work in those care facilities. It's really on the families, um, of, of those uh, people who live at nursing homes to really, you know, insist that everyone at the facility is vaccinated.
So let's take the next step. Okay, so if there is an outbreak, what can we do? And uh, what we do in this situation, if there's an outbreak, is to give every single person um, uh, antiviral prophylaxis, was osaltamivir or biloxifir. And I think that is the key. Even if they've been vaccinated, we uh, are really prudent about giving out prophylaxis in order to prevent a large outbreak in that situation. So that's a pretty unique um, high-risk population. It, it is, and it's, it's really important. I, I also think about a, a good plan for infection control in terms of isolation. Um, so they, there should be something that's, that's already there, and so the staff knows what to do. Um, I find that in programs that involve like daycare or maybe uh, sober living facilities, where you may have a number of individuals at high risk for complications living together, um, those programs may not be ready and may not be prepared, but it's, it's really important to, to prepare um, just so you can isolate folks who do get sick. And I also want to point out that, um, you know, COVID-19 vaccination remains a high priority as well, and there's, uh, there's no uh, contraindication now to using, you can actually give the influenza vaccine at the same time you give a COVID-19 uh, vaccine. Um, getting, obviously getting vaccinated against both will be very protective, particularly for older adults and those uh, very critically in long-term care facilities. Um, what about the, those who take care of older adults um, who are, you know, younger, maybe healthier, um, but if they are exposed to influenza, should they receive influenza, prof uh, influenza prophylaxis with an anti-influenza drug? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, prophylaxis is an, an interesting area, and I think the biggest key for who we should prophylax are our highest risk patients. So those are patients that have had lung transplants or advanced HIV, they've had um, stem cell transplants or pregnant women. And those are, uh, that's kind of the main category. However, they do also recommend considering household contacts or caretakers of older adults, and particularly older adults who are living with lung disease or immunocompromising conditions. So if a young, you know, 25-year-old, um, you know, household contact just had a very high risk exposure to influenza and they're caring for their you know, elderly mother who just had a lung transplant or their elderly mother, you know, who's on oxygen with severe COPD, I think in that situation, I would err on the side of giving that household contact with a high risk exposure, I would give them the prophylaxis. But really for kind of everyone else, um, the, the recommendation is to uh, alert patients to the early symptoms of influenza and you know either uh, and, and ask them to kind of reach out if they develop symptoms or to develop a plan if they have symptoms for treatment. Um, but we're not really giving universal prophylaxis to anyone under the sun who gets an exposure to influenza. I'll admit that I don't get a lot of requests for prophylaxis from caretakers, even though I do uh, see a lot of patients and their caretakers uh, here in my practice. Uh, but I was wondering, would, would it make a difference if that caretaker was vaccinated against influenza or not? Hopefully they have been because you really realize how important this is to, to prevent the transmission of influenza within the home. Um, but would that make a difference in your decision making about whether to prophylax the caretaker? Yeah, I think so. You know, we're talking, out, you know, outside of a congregate care setting, you know, we're talking outside of a, an assisted living or a long-term care facility. You know, if you're in someone's home and that person had a high-risk exposure but they are vaccinated, I think, and also the person with the underlying um, lung disease or immunocompromising condition is also vaccinated. I think it'd be very reasonable at that point just to watch and wait. 
um, and to not give them prophylaxis. But um, Chuck, I'd love to hear how you would handle that situation. I, I think that that's appropriate too. And as you said, you, um, there is that uh, treatment right at the at the moment of uh, initiation of symptoms. Um, Influenza is uh, not like COVID. And Mary, you, you can you can use your infectious disease expertise here to, to help me out. But um, from my understanding, whereas COVID uh, can be shed before patients develop symptoms and, and actually might be highest right before the development of uh, symptoms, with influenza, uh, usually the greatest shedding occurs after symptoms have developed. So there's, there's less eight, uh, pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic spread of influenza uh, versus COVID-19. That's exactly right. All right, so um, so got that got that one right. Thank you. Um, <laughs> all right, so uh, what about our older adults? Um, they have more chronic illnesses. They're taking many medications uh, frequently. Um, are there absolute contraindications or other risks for use of anti-influenza antivirals that uh, we want to make our patients aware of? Yeah, it's a, it's a good uh, question. You know, the most commonly used antiviral that I still use and pretty much everyone in our practice uses is Osaltamivir. We have the most experience with that antiviral agent and there's really no absolute contraindications to its use. Some of the newer agents, so Zanamivir is given via inhalation, is not uh, to be used in those with underlying lung disease such as COPD or asthma because it can cause a bronchospasm. And then veloxivir is a newer drug, um, which is given as a single dose, and there are also no absolute contraindications to its use there. So I still, in my practice, most commonly use Osaltamivir for, um, for treatment. But curious to see, um, Chuck, what you've been uh, what you've been using in your practice. Yeah, I think it's it's good to have options. It's always uh, good to have options. And as an infectious disease expert, you know it's it's good to have options because we don't know when the uh, next uh, influenza pandemic is coming. We just know it's coming one of these years. And so, just to have different drugs with different mechanisms of action is is important. Um, and I think all of the anti-influenza drugs are effective, and they're well tolerated, and they're uh, they're safe. Um, so I'm not really worried about drug-drug interactions. Um, I do think that one thing that differentiates baloxavir from oseltamivir is that oseltamivir, its, its main side effect is nausea and or vomiting. It occurs in about 8% of patients or so and usually can be alleviated by taking it with food. But for patients when they present and nausea and vomiting are part of their symptomatology of influenza, which does happen, um, or maybe they have a condition that affects the upper GI tract like diabetic gastroparesis. I just saw a patient yesterday with a significant uh, gastroparesis. Um, I might go with veloxavir because it doesn't have that same um, level of nausea and vomiting associated with it. Um, and that's one thing that I think can differentiate them. But, but the, again, the, the most important thing is make the patient aware that this is, it's important to initiate therapy and do so uh, right away and take the full course of therapy, particularly when we think about prevention of complications of influenza among older adults. All right, well, Mary, this uh, was a terrific session. I, I found it really clinically relevant. I always appreciate your insights, so thank you very much for participating today. Thank you, it was a pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks to our audience as well. Uh, we realize that you're very busy, but it means a lot that you're taking time to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, uh, check out the other three podcasts uh, on, in this series on influenza and high-risk populations. And you can also check out the additional series of interactive videos covering influenza management, which are located on the influenza curriculum webpage on PrimeMed. Take care. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primemed.com and complete a short post assessment. If you have listened to this podcast on another platform, 
please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on Prima.com for claiming CME credit. Thank you.